0: I'm Cody Commerce and this is the Meaning Lab podcast. One of the central themes of this show is the importance of the stories we tell about ourselves. But in focusing on the egocentric stakes of storytelling, one of the things we overlook, I certainly do, is the importance of the stories we tell about others. We make sense of life in the terms of our own experience. We conceptualize the world in a way that corresponds to what we've seen and what we understand. This allows us to tell our own story in a pretty nuanced way. But it limits us in the kind of stories we can tell about others, particularly others who, for political or cultural or social reasons, might be very different from us. We put other people into a box, and not the box which would best fit them, but rather one of the ones we have lying around which we previously used to make sense of our own world. This is a topic I've thought a lot about in my writing, my previous choice of podcast guests, and in my academic research. But what I love about my guest today is that she, more than anyone else I know, has actually lived it. Monica Guzman is a journalist and director of storytelling at Braver Angels, America's largest grassroots organization dedicated to political depolarization. Her new book is I Never Thought of It That Way, in which she explores her own experience trying to connect people across political and social divides. In this conversation, Monica and I cover so much, from the importance of stories in movies and TV, to our relationships with our families, to Monica's specific tactics for understanding others. But one of the things that stood out to me is this great line she gives later in the conversation about modern life being tired, scared, and busy. It reminded me of the famous characterization of pre modern life by Thomas Hobbes nasty, brutish, and short. I think it speaks to something it's so easy to forget. Each of us is living out our own complicated human experience. There is no one who has everything figured out, no one who has reached the point of quiescence. It's easy to see other people, particularly those with different beliefs from our own, as emblematic of some nefarious other way of life. But when it comes down to it, there is no simple way through this life. Everyone is dealing with their own struggle. We're better off as human beings the more we can come to appreciate the process of that struggle rather than judge its results. Monica's book is I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. It's out now. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. That's the main feed for my content, where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support the show. You can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. And thanks to everyone who's been giving the show positive ratings. It really helps a lot. If you have not yet already rated the show and you're listening on Spotify, please consider giving the Meaning Lab podcast a five-star review. It takes four seconds, literally less time than it'll take me to explain how easy it is. If you're on the Meaning Lab homepage where it shows the logo and says follow or following, click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show. Select the fifth star and press submit. That's it. And it helps a ton in growing the show's audience on the platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks for listening, and without any further ado, here is my conversation with Monica Guzman. Let me start off with a question that you cited in the book and in some other conversations I've heard you have as one of your favorite questions. And that's, why you? And in particular, you know, why have you become so devoted to understanding others? And, and why is your instinct to be curious and not necessarily defensive in the face of encountering ideas that are, are oppositional to your own?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I'll say is that I'm not some kind of Zen master of this. And, you know, I have been caught being quite uh, conflict driven in a bad way, and I still am. And so this is not, you know, something I've sort of figured out for all time or anything like that. But writing this book and all the work it took did get me to reflect on why me exactly that. And there's several threads. One is the movies. I grew up going to a lot of movies. My parents would take us to the movies once a week as kids, which we thought was normal, was not normal. (laughs) And there's something about fiction where you see the hero, you see the villain, but a good movie, really just a decent one of of minimal quality, should get you to understand characters' motivations. If you don't understand why people do what they do, the movie doesn't make any sense and you're not entertained or enlightened. So I watched a lot of movies and whether they were good or bad, everybody had their reasons. So in the book, I talk a good bit about that because something from fairly early on put that in me, that in real life, I don't get the benefit of watching everyone's movie. And that's why I don't understand them. Not because they don't have reasons for doing what they do and believing what they believe. Another thing is, the thread that brought me to journalism is just this general fascination with people. Uh, For a long time, I have found people to be the deepest, richest mysteries. I think it's kind of beautiful, and we don't often think about it, that People who've been together a long time or married a long time never run out of things to say to each other. You would think an entire lifetime would dry the well, but that's not how it works. It's just every moment, you know, there's fractal, a fractal kind of relationship. You zoom in and there's always more and more and more and more and more. So we're just bottomless. And that's really cool. It means that understanding each other can be really difficult, but also really illuminating. And then as far as the topic of the book in particular, which is curiosity across the political divide, uh, the biggest reason that I wrote the book was my parents. Um, I'm Eileen Liberal. I've always voted Democrat. And my parents, as soon as they became citizens in the year 2000, went straight Republican and haven't looked back since. So that has been really interesting and has led to a lot of very loud arguments over the years. But it got, uh, it it became personal to me when here in Seattle, I would hear, I would hear people say things about Trump voters that I thought were not just wrong, but really dehumanizing. And it's because I had parents that I absolutely loved and understood in mind that it just didn't seem acceptable. And I I wanted to dig deep to try to figure out why, because it's not the easiest thing to defend in some communities.
0: There's a real danger here of me taking you up on that first point about the movies and we just talk for the next uh, hour plus. about.
1: (laughs) Why is that dangerous? Why don't we just do it? I love movies. I
0: love that point so much. Uh, Well, here's one thing that I've been thinking about that I just want to share with you on this front. I think I have always felt this way and I I suspect you feel pretty much exactly the same way. There's so much power in these really nuanced renderings of, of stories of, of complicated people, and whether that's in the movies or in novels or whatever. And one of the things I love about living in this year, this kind of, you know, era, is that the ability to go deep on those in television is completely incredible. This was something I was thinking about really like last week. My partner and I watched, we binge watched a bunch of seasons of the show Billions and this is, if you haven't heard of it, it's like, okay, so there's this lawyer who's a defense attorney that's played by Paul Giamatti. And then there's this, you know, kind of Ray Dalio-esque head fund dude, dude. And they, they're like, okay, yeah, they're going to make much money. They're going to take down, you know, each other. And it's, it's sort of these things. And typically what happens in a TV show is that there is moral ambiguity with respect to like, okay, here is the bad person I'm going to show them doing bad person things and we're going to judge them for it. And maybe we like them even though they're a bad person. But here's the thing. One of the beautiful things about this show is that everyone is just trying to do what they think is right. And in trying to do that, there are these really severe conflicts, but there's nothing singular that you can point to and say, oh my gosh, well, that that was clearly a, a moral infraction. We should we should really be angry about the fact that it shows that. And I think stories like that are so powerful and that speaks right right to your your, your
1: point. Absolutely. You've made me think of, so I studied film as my minor in college and the way I got into newspapers and journalism to begin with was being a film critic for my college paper. And, you know, movies just give you such a fun glimpse into human nature. If the stories make sense, it's because they resonate with us because we recognize something in the world about them. E- and, and I was just thinking about, that cliche thing in every superhero movie uh, where there's a villain, there's a scene where the villain gets to explain himself. Or I was just watching, you know, Wednesday on Netflix, and you see, like, the villain get to explain, and I won't say the gender because that gives too much away and everyone should see that show. But, uh, yeah, and even in that, even in those scenes, right, they're diabolical, they're evil, but they always have a reason. And, and there's this funny thing that happens to the viewer in those scenes, where as a viewer you're understanding why they did it. And you go, oh my gosh, that makes sense. Even though it's terrible. That makes sense. I know why Lex Luthor has this world domination thing, right? I know why they all think they know better. Why Thanos wanted to snap away half of existence. Whoa. Right. And it's this weird moral thing that happens in your heart. Um, (laughs) Even like Austin Powers, you know, makes fun of those moments, where, where the villain explains himself and, and then gives the hero the way to save the day and things like that. But, 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 you know, even with villains, they have their reasons. It has to make sense.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think part of what I think is really worth highlighting about that is that from the outside, if you just were to say, Hey, here's the plot summary, there is this dude, Thanos, he's going to snap his fingers and everyone, like half the universe is going to disappear. Right. That is from the outside an objectively bad thing. And maybe we can, maybe we don't need to, to do the, the Thanos example exactly. I don't know if that, that plays out in what I'm about to say, but I think there is this thing that um, when we see someone do something we don't like, we assume that they're doing it to accomplish the thing that we don't like. Um, where in reality they're they're often motivated by their own set of values, which we may not have considered. And f- furthermore, they may not even when you start to look at their situation, have an option that would allow them to play out in in the way uh, that that we'd want it to. And kind of what I I mean by that is that, like, I'm a big fan of books by Jonathan Franzen. And he does these really large studies of, like, uh, these novels about, um, like, American families and everything. And one of the things that strikes me about reading his book is that, like, everyone is kind of fucked in their own way. Like, there's something that's not working well for them. But when you like sit down and look at like, what are the actual choices they can make? There's no choices they can make to unfuck their situation, so to speak. And uh, from the outside, we would just assume that there is. Um, and so I think there's a whole constellation of ideas in this that like, like, this is what stories allow us to really understand the nuance to this in ways that, you know, it's just sort of nonfiction and just everyday life and that sort of stuff. We're either too abstract or, or we're too close to it personally, all that sort of stuff. That's why I love stories as they're told in really great uh, novels and, and TV and, and, and movies right now.
1: Yeah. And there's research that shows that when we share stories to illustrate why we believe what we believe, it, it is more persuasive, not to get people to look at things the way we do, but to get them to understand how we look at it differently. And I find that research so interesting. And it's the same exact thing that happens in these. TV shows that have become like movies, but exponentially more powerful because they take that much more time with characters and stories and layers and things. And that just gives us even more nuance and more depth to question our assumptions. So often there's sort of tropes and stereotypes we can apply at the beginning when meeting characters for the first time. And then good shows, I think, un- uncover that for us and show us that there's angles on these characters that we didn't. You know, re- recognize. A lot of times characters keep secrets from each other because of shame or guilt. But as the viewer, we have the privilege of seeing inside their hearts and their minds, right? And we watch them be stupid with each other because for some reason they can't connect, right? They can't see each other for who they are. And that's really my hope ultimately is when I think of my vision, it's to, to build a more curious world. And what's a more curious world? It's a world that sees itself because a lot of times we just don't want to see. For whatever reason, we don't want to show. For whatever reason, we don't trust each other. We don't trust the contexts in which we attempt to share where we come from. Um, so we don't, or we misrepresent ourselves, or we misrepresent others, or we attack, or we, oh, gosh, it's a mess, right? It's a mess. But, uh, but we tell a lot of the same stories over and over again, because it is something that I think the human his spirit needs is we need these stories and we need this way of connecting to each other even if we make up the stories we recognize something in it that's true um yeah and I I find it I I find movies and, and fiction to be so so powerful um on that front for us to to imagine situations we have not been in and actually be able to feel what that character might be feeling is an extraordinary gift
0: I want to go back and, and ask you a little bit more about your parents. This was a part of your, your book and in your story that I found really fascinating because it really echoed a lot of my own experience. I also was raised in a Republican household. And until I went to college in LA, pretty much everyone I knew was a Republican, uh, especially my parents. And pretty much everyone in my social circle was a born again Christian. I didn't really have... A reason to question that worldview. So I just sort of went along with it. And then, you know, the story from here, you know, I, I spent my 20s in the bastions of liberal civilization and all that sort of stuff. And, and my views changed and everything. Uh, but I retain this really deep sympathy for that initial worldview that I grew up with. And I felt like, in a way, this has been a kind of advantage over my, my friends who were raised in a liberal environment is that I feel like I have this really deep-seated appreciation for why someone would hold conservative beliefs or a Christian worldview and a lot of my peers back home you know maybe their views also changed but they didn't really retain that sympathy and there's there's a lot of feelings of kind of being betrayed or lied to even in, in a way that they don't seem to be able to to forgive yet and um you know bringing it back to your book you cite lots of stories of people who are not able to overcome this ideological conflict with their family. So uh, from that particular lens, what is it about your particular experience with your parents beyond just having those differences that, that allowed you to seek that desire for understanding? Like, why, do you, why are you able to disagree and get along with your family so well when so many others aren't?
1: I mean, it's difficult to answer that question you know, declaratively um, or in any kind of final way. So I consider it very much an open question, something I'm still exploring. It was something that drove a lot of the book's research and, and reflection was just, how come it works for us? It doesn't make sense. It's really hard. It ought to be really hard. And it is really hard. And and I, I like to make that clear too, that again, it's not like we're Zen masters of this. Uh, you know, We yell all the time about this stuff and it can get mean. But I think part of what's happened is over time, we've built up a lot of trust so that even when we do sort of insult or get pretty close to the bone, it still doesn't get that dangerous in terms of our relationship. So there, there's there's a lot to that that I didn't address in this book because it's more about how you build deep relationships, right? Um, and and how loving or supportive those relationships feel. So I think I think that that is a factor. Um, some relationships feel thin, uh, or thinner, or like uh, the the mo all along has been not to bring up really challenging things, and so the muscles haven't been worked on that as well. But another thing is that with family, there's expectations. So when we encounter strangers and we start talking, you know, there there's a sense of safety because they can't disappoint us all that much. We don't have a certain association or relationship with them. But I think with family members, sometimes we carry it with us that how could my mother believe X? How could my sister do Y? How could someone who is close to me and therefore I somehow, you know, need to speak for, kind of rubs off on me, do these things? And so I think also expectations are, are, are a piece of it where we it's hard to just get past that. How could you? How could you? How could you? But you can turn the how could you to how could you? Wait, let me let me turn that from a judgment to an actual question of curiosity. There is a reason and it's not that there are bad people. So what is the reason? And so that was what happened with my parents and myself. Um, wait a minute, how could you? This, this flies in the face of things I understand about you, <laughs> right? So explain it to me. Um, I write in the book about one one night that me and my dad got into a great conversation and we happened to go to this kind of jazz show because we both love music. and, And before the big show started, we just ended up in a really deep conversation where I was just like, explain your views on immigration to me, but I didn't actually say, explain your opinion on immigration. We didn't talk about immigration hardly at all. It was more like, tell me your story, dad, like take me for a walk through what it was like in Mexico and then to move your family to the United States. Like, how did you grow up into this? And he told me these wonderful things that in my mind, just fleshed out that story, that nuanced story of who he is and the, how could you not support, you know, a much more free-flowing immigration policy? And now I know the answer. Um, And it wasn't because I just shouted that question at him over and over again.
0: I think what I want to ask you about are some of the themes that you described either in the book or in other conversations that I've heard that really resonated with me and just kind of have you explain a little bit more about what they, what they mean. And, and I'll ask some follow-up questions about that. But one of the things that story kind of reminds me of is, is this quote that I have from you uh, about how trying to change people is a way of saying you don't accept them. And it sounds a lot like the principle that you're using, especially in engaging, uh, with your father in that example is is let's let's hear you out and let's worry about changing things later on um so can you can you say a little bit about what that means
1: yeah it, it brings me back to another another point that i'm still deeply kind of processing which is my conviction that listening is about showing people they matter um i i don't believe people can truly hear unless they feel heard which puts us in a chicken and egg situation when we get together with someone who disagrees with us and neither of us feels heard. Somebody has to be the first one to basically, in their gesture, their words, their posture, their tone, communicate, I accept you. So tell me about yourself. I am interested. I am curious. Tell me your story. Flesh out this or that piece of things more often than not, when it comes to these political issues, we come in with so much heat. Um, we've already made lots of judgments about people who could possibly believe this or that. And, it, and what we end up doing is we feel like what we're doing is we're approaching an invalid idea instead of what we're doing being, we're approaching a valid person. And so I think it's important to begin there. Whatever the idea, you are appro- approaching a valid person everybody is a valid person and in my in my view everybody matters so begin there you know their their ideas are different their ideas are unsavory their ideas are confounding their ideas are horrible to you but they are still a person and we have to contend with that so yeah there is a level of acceptance when you begin a conversation or a disagreement or a debate basically by attacking 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 the idea, it feels like you're attacking the person. It feels like you're not accepting the person. Then all the person will want to do is defend themselves. And pretty soon, you're not even really exploring your perspectives candidly anyway. They aren't and you aren't. And you end up just thinking, what's the weapon I can hurl at them? What's the talking point I've seen work on social media? Let me throw that at them and see if it blows them up. But what will never happen is that you're gonna throw one of these memes and they're gonna go, oh my God, you're right. No, not after, not after that kind of hostility. We, we have pride, we have dignity. That's not how we behave with each other. If you do want persuasion to work, which it can, you have to keep dignity, you know, and you have to show them that they matter. And c- being curious about them is one of the greatest ways to do that and to keep that posture. So that's where persuasion is most effective, right? When people feel like you get them, and you begin to you begin to speak each other's language, you know their values a little bit, they know yours. Now you can deliver insights to each other that might actually impact how you think about things
0: so you mentioned this notion that everyone is a valid person, even if you don't think they have valid ideas, they themselves are are valid, and that reminds me of another point that 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 I hear you make, which is that uh and this is quoting you, meaning is in people, not words. And also your concepts about shifting from what's true to what's meaningful and asking people, what are your concerns? And sort of reframing things as opposed to this ideological conflict over the nature of verifiable reality and all that sort of stuff. You're saying, "Uh, tell me what matters to you. Um, And I feel like that's really in line with that framing of, let's not talk about which ideas are are valid off the bat. Let's start with a a respect for the validity of each other's experience and then work from there.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Meaning is in people, not words is a very profound statement for me. And it comes from a lot of places and I'm already seeing the scenes in my mind, right? Um, sometimes I wish I could be like data from Star Trek to the Next Generation and just kind of download, you know, we just link up by cable and you see what I mean, right? But that, but that's actually the point. Meaning is in people, not in words. Language is a tool for communicating our meaning. And so it's particularly tragic when we use language as a weapon, you know, to tell other people that they're bad. Uh, and we do this a lot when language becomes a battleground. And a reason to say, you know, you're stupid because you just called this this and you did this here and you don't know what you're talking about. But what's the game we're playing? Is the game we're playing trying to get an A plus in a certain type of jargon? Or is the game we're playing trying to understand each other? Because if that's the game, then everyone's doing their best to try to articulate and communicate what's in their hearts. But but if we judge everybody by their language, then think about who you are prioritizing, right? You're prioritizing the the savvy speaker, (laughs) the intellectual, and you're not necessarily prioritizing the, the ordinary person, but everyone is a valid person. Everyone has had experience in life. Everyone is an expert on their own life. So I just look at it very differently, that sometimes it's on the listener to try to understand the language in which the other person can fully speak their meaning instead of holding the other person to some kind of linguistic litmus test you know? um, So I I find that really important. And um, in my journalism, I have found it really, really important. Um, Some of the projects that I've done, you know, have been about trying to make sure that people who aren't usually put on stage or given a voice have a way of expressing their stories. And people, some people are not born communicators. So we help them. I want to help them do that because I think we can learn from each other and we shouldn't put these kinds of things in our way. So that's, that's it. It's like, Languages has to be a medium through which com- we communicate meaning, but not the end of it, not the place where we judge whether someone's meaning is, is good or complete. It's, it blo- it's in the person themselves. So find other ways to get to it. Um, and then you, you had brought up another point, you, um, another quote or another piece that was tied to that. Oh, the meaning, right, right. Um, the concept of what is true versus what is meaningful And that's inspired deeply by my friend Buster Benson uh, and the book he wrote, Why Are We Yelling?, which is a great book. And I think that basically what happens is that we often want to have the conversation about what is true when we are having disagreements. It seems like the only conversation to have, the only one that's relevant or good or possible, but we get really stuck on that conversation really easily when we're so divided. People talk about having different facts, different realities, and so then what do you do? You just insist on your reality and then watch the other person reject it over and over again. People think that they have to stop talking and that there's no place to go from there, but they're wrong. Because the conversation about what is true is not the only conversation you can have. You can have the conversation about what is meaningful. So step back from facts and you know agreed upon interpretations of certain events and turn to the person, that valid person, and try to understand what's meaningful to them, what concerns you about abortion or immigration. What do you hope to see happen in the conversation about guns? Is there some, what personal experiences, you know, come to mind when you think about your position on this? And then you get a human picture and you get an original picture of this person's actual self instead of them borrowing talking points to try to survive your attacks. That's not what we want. And the best thing about it is the conversation about what is meaningful is the only conversation that builds trust. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's the thing that's dried up. You know we, we we talk about restoring truth. You can't do it without restoring trust.:
0: There's another idea that I want to bring in here. It's a slightly different point, but one that I think is kind of helpful to put in juxtaposition to what you're talking about here. and it has to do with you know a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, particularly in politically charged arguments. There is this sort of feeling that what we're litigating is this kind of high stakes ideological value of what's right and and what's wrong. And the stakes are so high. And oftentimes what's helpful, and maybe you know, just talking about things where people are conflicting ideas in general, not just politics, is holding one's ideas lightly. And this this makes me think of something that I used to really consider a lot when I was younger, particularly in college. And it's about how I used to think of trying on opinions like trying on clothes.
1: Oh, no way. Cool.
0: <laughs> That's great. Like if you don't put it on and, and walk around in it for a bit, like how are you going to know if it fits or not? And so I really loved this this idea um, because it, rel- it it sort of takes aim at the assumption that we can think our way through the implications of every idea. And for any idea that you hold or any sort of larger position that you you take, it's going to interact with with other beliefs that you hold and and different kinds of experiences that you're going to have and that sort of stuff. And I think if you're going to adopt a given belief as a core part of who you are and something that's like foundational and unimpeachable and that sort of stuff, then there should be a rule that you first need to spend two weeks going through life holding the opposite point of view. And then once you've done that, great. You're totally allowed to believe the other thing for the rest of your life. Um, But the thing is, you know, I suspect that if you go through life really trying on the other belief and and sincerely trying to see the world through that, that lens, then it, it might really temper your certainty about that initial position.
1: Yeah, I absolutely love that. Reminds me, my um, a mentor of mine in journalism, Tom Rosenstiel, who's just fabulous, uh, told me about an editor at an alternative weekly who was talking to a reporter and the reporter said, I want to do more advocacy journalism. I want to, I want to write more of an advocacy piece on this particular issue but the ed- the editors basically said yeah you can do that but first i want you to deeply understand as generously as you can all the- all the points of view in this issue that's that's when that's when you're kind of greenlit to just argue for the you know just kind of have the one and and speak from that lens um and he talks about that as a an ideal in journalism um when there's a storytelling institution that carry such weight and power and helping us all understand each other. I, I think it's a great, it's a great goal that those folks should go through an exercise. that's similar to what you're talking about. Generously open your mind and fully explore why good people believe different things. Um, and a lot of people get stuck on the good people part. They believe that only bad people can believe certain things, but, that's something to really stop and and, and challenge, you know, the, when you have that kind of assumption. So I, I love that. I think that that's very wise, very difficult to do, and for sure not something we can do with everything. I also love what you said about challenging the assumption that we can think our way through any idea, that just in a couple of minutes, I can rule out, I can just completely destroy this other point of view in my head, and then I don't need to think about it anymore. But like you said, when you wear an idea, when you put it on and you look at the world through it, you know, you'll see maybe some of the good in it that you didn't see before. You'll understand what it adds to a life to look at the world that way. There could be all kinds of things you discover. And I, I love what you said about, we so often think this all comes down to reason and rationality and logic, because again, like that, we're kind of a technophilic society. Everything should be countable, you know, and logic and that's it. It's like you, you add it up and you subtract it and math has one final answer. And if it has a lot, then you haven't done your work. But that's not humanity. Never has been, never will be. We're not going to calculate and quantify everything. It's not going to happen. Some things you do just, there's a sense, there's a living, there's, there's an intangible to everything. Um, and, and people are very frustrated, I think, by the fact that you can't turn the, all this into some formula. They prefer it when, it, when, when we think we can.
0: So far, we've mostly been talking about these kind of mechanisms for, for understanding, I guess you could say. Whereas a lot of what it comes down to in the situations that we're talking about is not necessarily your strategy for for understanding others. So that is important. There's no doubt about that. But it has to do with your motivation for understanding others. And that's why I think curiosity is so central to all of the arguments that that uh, you find yourself making and, and that sort of stuff, because it has to start with this desire to overcome whatever kind of ideological obstacles are there. And so I want to kind of frame this in terms of, of problems of, of contact and geography and, and all the sort of stuff. So you're talking about, you know, if you write a piece, if you, Mon- Monica, write a piece of journalism and... You know, it's making an argument for a a liberal, you know, policy or something like that. What are the chances that that is going to sit, be, make it onto the desk of a Republican who is in a place to really deeply and sympathetically consider that? And the answer is that increasingly in our society, for both technological and kind of logistical reasons of of how people are, are, are self segregating into different ideological factions. Yeah, the answer is not very often. And so it has to be an ever increasingly large motivation to want to overcome whatever that that boundary is. And then our toolkit of understanding and, and, and you know, sort of conversational strategies really comes into play. So how do you think about the problem of, of building up that, that motivational impetus to want to overcome whatever geographical or other kinds of boundaries are in between us and people who we don't necessarily agree with.
1: Yeah. No, you you named a lot in that. It, It often is geographic. Blue zip codes are getting bluer. Red zip codes are getting redder. Sometimes it's about opportunity, not motive. It's difficult to spontaneously run into someone and then discover that they disagree with you in some key way and then build from there. So there's a sense of helplessness I think people feel where they go, Well, how can I even do this? How do I even begin? And I think it helps to see things differently um, because I think that some some of these narratives we tell ourselves about how we're divided have closed too many doors. So for example, I talk about how we're so divided, we're blinded. And it's not just one side looking at the other. A lot of the most captivating emails I've gotten from readers of the book, both on the left and right, talk about how. They feel that they can't give their true opinions to people on their own side. So even when we think we're surrounded by people who agree with us, of course we're not. There's plenty of places you disagree. It's just that there's this expectation that you shouldn't. And so it's it's equally important, I would say, to make sure that you can see the nuance even within a side. So So yeah, so even if you are surrounded, if you're blue surrounded by blue, red surrounded by red, Trust me, there are interesting conversations to be had and you can crack open assumptions that you have about what you believe and find some fascinating stories. This happens uh, particularly uh, often with guns and abortion, I've noticed, where people go, I just assumed you thought so-and-so because you and I vote the same way or whatever. And people are like, nope, (laughs) you know, here's what happened to me. Here's how I think about it differently. So that's one. The other is that while it is true that we are sorted into like-minded groups in extraordinary ways that are hard to overcome, it's also true that we have one person has never had more access to more different perspectives in, in the history of the world. You know, the internet is motivated. It's, it's built to give people what they want, you know, the, the attention economy, get eyeballs to stick on someplace or whatnot. But with the right strategy, you can turn that on its head. Uh, I find this to be effective with certain um, communities that are really kind of um, just articulate with each other. So, for example, on subreddits, uh, on Reddit, there's some wonderful communities that you can go in and just kind of read how a certain community of belief talks to itself. And it's really cool. It's really revealing. right? A lot of times we want to go into those communities and just raise hell because we disagree. But we can we can do something very different, which is listen. So even on the internet where it was much harder to have these kinds of interactions, there's a lot, there's a lot of difference that you can run into. Uh, So, so that's also important. But, but I guess the, you know, the bigger point is that it is, it is so much about approach and a place like the internet still, the internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. It is difficult to be in that place of I'm approaching a valid person when that person has a little cartoon character for an avatar and behaves like a jerk, (laughs) how you see the person there, you know, it just, all you can, all you can do is your, your id and your ego are just constantly being pummeled in your mind. So, and here's the, the other piece of helplessness people feel is they think that that one conversation that they could have with that relative or that coworker isn't enough, that it won't move the needle. But what I say is it's, the, it's absolutely required. It may be insufficient, but we're not going to change without that. Because as you said, people have divided and split off into so many of these silos. The trust isn't being built anymore in between those places. So the only place where we can have high trust is where there are pre-existing relationships. So when you do go to Thanksgiving or you do go to your holiday dinners or you do hang out with your family, you just don't see who thinks very differently from you. It's true that there actually could be a lot of power in if you just establish enough trust to help each other empathize in a different way with the opposite point of view, it's extraordinary how that travels. So at Braver Angels, which is the nonprofit I work at, it's the largest cross-partisan nonprofit working to depolarize America, I see this over and over again, where just a f- handful of reds and blues will get together in a workshop, and in a structured setting, they'll be able to see each other's points of view in a more curious way, and it really kind of makes them go, whoa. What that means is that the next time that they read an article that dehumanizes the other side, or the next time that they're tempted to just make a rash judgment, they'll remember that experience that they had and they'll pause. So it does, it does extend beyond that one conversation. Um, and it also shows that that's how bad things have gotten, right? Where, where, we're, we're so certain of these assumptions we have of each other, that one counter example will go a long way.
0: There's several things I want to, ask you about in that answer. But the first is fairly straightforward. So you mentioned scouring Reddit. What are some other strategies that you found effective for finding and understanding other perspectives on the internet and sort of breaking you out of, you know, your, uh, you know, kind of ideological bubbler, however you want to describe it?
1: My favorite is just when you read a opinion article a perspective that's been written out or even a video or what have you by someone on the other side that would normally just make you angry. Uh, And you, what you would normally do is you would read that article looking for all the reasons that person is wrong and bad. You don't realize we're not conscious of this. We're not conscious that that's what we're doing. We're reading it with that question. I want more reasons. This person is bad. I want more reasons I'm good and better than them. I want more reasons that they're evil or stupid or crazy, right? And so you have to switch the question. As you read those articles, instead of asking yourselves those questions that come from a very, like, taken-for-granted, judge judgy place, ask a question that's more curious. And, and one of my favorites is, what are the deep-down concerns that are animating this person's argument? Deep-down concerns that are good, <laughs> that I can see the reason to have, for, for them having. Are they afraid of losing something that I'm not afraid of losing? Are they, I don't know, afraid of change in a way that could feel threatening to them? What can you read be- between the lines beneath the anger, the rhetoric, the certainty? There's a human being in there who is who is livid about something. OK, um, there's an author, Valerie Cower, who I quote all the time, who wrote in her book, uh, See No Stranger, that anger is a force that protects that which is loved. So if we keep looking at anger and saying, this is why this person is so bad and stupid and horrible and crazy, we're not going to understand them. But if we look at anger as, whoa, this touches a nerve. There's something this person cares about that feels threatened. What is that thing? And how can I look at that generously? So it has changed my life to look at those articles that way. When I recognize that I am reading with that question of, let me find more evidence this person is terrible. But I change the question to, what are the deep down concerns that are animating this person's opinion? then I'm in a more generous place and I go, yeah, well, (laughs) we come at this from different places, but you know what? I get it. Like, yeah, that's an interesting concern. That's why this is a debate, (laughs) you know, because our big debates that go on forever and never seem to be resolved. It's not because there's good people and evil people in a battle that doesn't get won. It's because these issues are actually putting good values into tension with each other and they're not going to be easily resolved. And yes, there are bad actors exploiting things one way or another, exploiting people's sense of threat and fear. And the best thing we can do to guard ourselves from that is not be too afraid. And that's something we really suck at right now. We're letting our fear get in the way of understanding. And we're letting our fear define other people for us. Um, There's a wonderful quote, um, don't let your, what is it? Don't waste your fear on anything but danger. Because fear is designed to get us away from danger. But when we're afraid of everyone and everything, <laughs> then what fear will do is make us less creative, more anxious. We don't, we don't want those lives. So we better be really sure that what we're afraid of is what's really there and not the imagined thing that we assume is there. Hey,
0: Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work, and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes, and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing, which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future more people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. There's something I'm I'm really trying to wrap my head around here, which is I think for you and me who are both really invested in this topic and, you know, you've obviously written an excellent book on it. I've been thinking about it in the context of psychology for for quite a few years now. How do we understand people who are different from ourselves? I think like the question that I'm asking myself is like, what's... when you say, okay, what you need is this this mental shift from going from sort of like judging the, the sort of merits of like, okay, you know, here's where they're wrong and sort of reframing that in terms of what are their values and, and seeing sort of this deeper picture of who they are and, and their fears and this kind of humanizing portrait and that sort of stuff. What is preventing people from doing that? Is this like a knowledge problem? Like people just simply do not understand that sort of thing, or we're so tied to the sort of conflict of like sacred values. And so we just see everything in that lens. And if we just take a step back from it, like, 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 what is the, like, yes, if we could all, you know, sort of be able to sit down for these round tables that you're describing with braver angels. Okay, great. I would love that. You would love that. That's, that's, that would, that would be like, but like, what is missing in this piece where we're so intent on being in conflict rather than in sympathy
1: yeah i mean it's interesting i i wonder you know is it that we are intent in being in conflict rather than being in sympathy i i think that's something closer to we're tired we're scared and we're busy so we're already i'm very concerned with kind of ethic around media consumption where it almost feels like in order to consider yourself an intelligent and a good person, you need to be reading a lot of news. But the thing is, I, I don't know how much one life is supposed to, I don't know how many opinions we're supposed to have on everything. And I don't know whether it's good to be taken away from our own lives all the time. And which is not to say, of course, I mean, I'm a journalist, like what's going on in the world matters to us deeply. But it does seem like the ratio is off, you know, that when we're there with people with whom we have some relationship, oftentimes we're thinking about what's on our phones, and what's going on far away. And we feel more connected to some network on social media that includes people we've never met, rather than the people around us with whom we have the most possibility of understanding and connection. So something there just is backwards and, and is kind of going the wrong way. And what I think that's done is it's really weakened a lot of our communities. And communities, what they do is they give people a grounding. They give people a sense of support. And I was talking earlier earlier about me and my parents. And we can go all over the place, crazy places that I wouldn't recommend to anyone <laughs> when we argue because we know that it's not going to break our relationship because it's just really, really strong. And so I, we're, losing those, we're losing those places where we build relationships and we're spending, I think, too much time trying to spread our caring out to so many things. So again, we're tired, we're scared, we're busy. And how are we supposed to care about all these things? Well, we take shortcuts and we think, well, our side, I, I'm, I belong to this side, so let me just make sure that I wear the robes of this side because that's the way that I will be supported by the community of belief that I belong to. Why? Because everything feels high stakes. And if I'm not a a card-carrying member of this side, if I question anything, then I could be kicked out. I could feel like I don't belong. I could be shamed. And I don't want to do that. I don't know what other strong connections I have. I don't know what identity I have beyond this. I don't see a context or a model of what it looks like for someone to just have their own beliefs and not necessarily conform to one group or another. So it's also this groupthink and tribalism that's been written about lots and is, is particularly pernicious right now, um, where people are just aren't sure that if they went and said what they really felt or thought or wondered about or questioned, that they would be supported. Um, and so I, I really hope that we can find our way to that with each other. And that's, again, why I say that trust is more important. Trust is so important because people won't be honest if they don't feel that they can share themselves in a trusting way. They're not going to be honest, so no wonder, right? No wonder we're seeing what well, the stories we are sharing are gross exaggerations of reality.
0: Tired, scared, and busy. I feel like that could be the sort of canonical counterpoint to Thomas Hobbes' "nasty, brutish, and short." I that love the- that. <laughs> Yeah, you know I what I mean? Them. It's like, we think modern life is so good. And, you know, thank God we don't have to be nasty British and short. Oh, you know, this is totally an aside. I uh, was typing that phrase the other day and it auto-corrected to nasty British in short. And I absolutely <laughs> loved funny. that. It was like the best moment. It's great. Oh, but, um, <sighs> nasty British. No, no, sorry. Uh, tired, scared, and busy. What? To what extent so let, let me try and create a counter like a like a counter argument here. Cause I think one of the one of the things that's tricky about this conversation is that like we both want to make the claim, look, we should all try harder and in particular these strategies to, to understand each other. And I don't know that the opposite of that is there's other people saying, Well, no, actually understanding each other is like useless. And it's not an important part of society at all. And we should just continue to do this. And so there's a question of, well, what is the oppositional claim here? What does someone else? Cause no one believes you know, no, understanding people screw that, or we're not gonna do that. It's, it's, it's something else. And so I have a hard time putting my finger on just one thing that could could be. I think there's a it's number. It's several one, things. Yeah. yeah, let's 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 hear. That. I've got one in mind. I want to hear your things, and then I uh, I have one in particular. So let's yeah. Let's, let's hear I what mean, your thoughts one about.
1: that I've heard is you know I want to spend my energy making a difference, and um, talking things to death is not action. Uh, and in fact, conversation gets in the way of action and impedes action and makes us uncertain about things that are good and that we need to just move on because there's urgency here. And I find that really compelling and a really beautiful argument. It's it's um it's kind of the activist's argument, the advocate's argument, and um I I really enjoy <laughs> I really enjoy uh, hearing from folks for whom that is the main barrier. Um, but i but what i believe though is that activists and advocates who are not spending a chunk of time questioning their own assumptions about their own opposition are not going to be effective and that we're swimming in those kinds of assumptions and that a lot of activism today is not effective and if in fact is backfiring because it is not taking into account that dignity and respect that is required for actual persuasion. And it is also happening in these spaces that reward performance and give you metrics that make it seem like you're being effective, but you're really preaching to the choir. So if you want to spend your energy making an impact, are you making an impact? How do you know? Because a whole lot of likes on your post is not the evidence you need, right? Are you, are you putting your, your argument persuasively in some, in front of someone who can hear it, who does not currently hold it, right? So every advocate and activist, I think, if they take their work and mission seriously, needs to ask hard questions about that. Some of the most effective advocacy uh, has done exactly that. Um, the gay rights movement is, is a, a wonderful example. There's an author named Jonathan Rauch, who is an activist in that space and tells brilliant stories about that, that the last thing people <laughs> who were fighting for same-sex marriage wanted to do was go and talk to people who felt that they were less than because they wanted to marry within the same gender. But because they were listening to, the, to those people so generously, they were able to learn that the place where they could begin to work and persuade was that a lot of these people who just genuinely did not want same-sex marriage, didn't see the value of it, thought it was bad, many of them had relatives. They loved sons, daughters, sisters, who were gay. And the question ended up being, wouldn't you want someone you love to be able to enjoy the the, the the rewards of a married relationship? And he says, that's when the lights started going off. And that's where the beginning of the change was, right? So a lot of this change won't happen if you don't, if, if you just assume you already know, if you vilify the other side, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. It's not going to be real change. So that's one. And I can talk to, talk about others.
0: But can I can I ask on this? I'm actually really fascinated to hear hear some more about this. This is actually a topic that I'm researching for something right now, which is about how metrics get in the way of our ability to understand others. And yeah, can you say a little bit more about what are the metrics that people are using? So you kind of described well. Here's what happens when you actually successfully try and understand someone, then you can more effectively change there their view, or at least, you know, sort of encourage them to, to change their view in a way that you might want. What are the metrics that people are looking at that they get in the way of that? Do you have any examples of that?
1: Metrics that, that people are looking at that are getting in the way of that? Any any metric that rewards uh, virality doesn't tend to ask the important question, who is sharing this content? Who is reading it and how are they reading it? One of the tragedies of The internet, in particular, is that we cannot witness listening. You know, I post something on some social media platform; I don't get to see the see the face of the person reading my post, right? And so, who knows? A lot of people will read that post going ugh, and like scrolling away, and I'll never get to see the ugh. All I see is the people hitting like or the people leaving nasty comments. But those tend to go; those tend to be on the edge of the bell curve, right? Either really angry or they really love it or whatever but you don't actually see how people are reacting and responding to you, um, which is terrifying. And it, it's, it has a chilling effect, right? We want to look good in front of each other. And we imagine how we, because we can't see it. We fill in the blanks with our imagination. We imagine how each other's going to, how other people are going to react to what we're saying. And we'll often imagine the worst. Basically it's a dance for our insecurities. You know, <laughs> That's all that is. So the more supported you feel, well, maybe the more courage you will have to say what you really mean and back it up. But the less supported you feel, the more you'll be wanting to attack others and make sure that you just look good, right? So so any metrics of virality that don't actually take into account how, what, how people are actually responding or reacting, you know, and if meanwhile, you are unfriending people who don't agree with you, then what is virality really telling you? You know, only that people who already agree with you, agree with you, hooray. Well, are you making any difference, you know? Um, and and in fact, it's often has a backfire effect, right? Because memes that are really that like go rah, rah, rah. One side goes, yeah. People, someone on the other side sees that. And what they see is derision and contempt. They don't see a persuasive argument. You think you're mic dropping something into their laps. No, you are telling them how much you despise them. That's all, <laughs> you know? So you're here thinking you've just mic dropped something. and And that person is just going, see another member of x group being terrible to me and not respecting me or whatever and we do this to each other all the time so i want to
0: go back to the scared and the tired scared and busy in particular in in, in sort of considering it in this 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 vein of counter arguments and what i'm thinking about here is that a lot of what you've mentioned is well you want to ask people what are your concerns you want to figure out what's meaningful for them you want to figure out what people are are scared of. And you know, we each have these, these concerns in, in areas of, of danger. And all, all of these sort of things are consistently relevant in understanding others. And so one of the things that I find myself wondering is like, maybe the thing here isn't better strategies for for conversations. And maybe it isn't even more opportunities for conversations. Maybe if we just solved people's problems of economic precarity, for example, or, you know, sort of play that out. Like if we just made a better society uh, and, you know, sort of sweeping under the rug, how difficult that is to do, et cetera, whatever, like if we solved those problems, would, would we have these problems of understanding one another in a diverse society? Or would it just be like, oh, you know, I'm not really worried about the immigrants because I've got my stuff going on. I'm pretty happy. They've got their stuff going on. Pretty, I don't feel threatened by them. And just like, if I run a a story about them, cool, like, nice, that's really interesting. And you don't feel that stakes of like, well, if this other group succeeds, then my group is going to be diminished, my prospects are going to be lesser. And therefore, there's this, you know, sort of natural openness for you you don't you don't have this, like, do you think that that what do you make of that?
1: I think that's really insightful. Absolutely. I think if we're looking for a permanent solution, it's got less to do with everybody's got to like figure out a manual for this stuff. It's like, we didn't need it before. (laughs) Why didn't we need it before? Because we weren't so dang anxious. And we didn't think that everything was such a huge threat, personal threat. We think that now in part because identity has been wrapped up with opinion, you know, for very interesting, good reasons for a lot of people. We do that because the media machines of our politicians and, Media that desperately need our attention have exploited uh, our fears to make sure that we are giving them our attention and our votes and all of that. And they know that fear sells. Um, I talked about how I studied movies, you know, in college and the cheapest genre of film is horror. Um, It just doesn't take that much to get people scared. And so um, there's some really successful uh, horror films that cost almost nothing to make. I think it's a it's a, it's a beautiful analogy. Fear is really cheap and really yeah. easy. And so we don't even notice sometimes that we, we just feel it so strongly. Fear is a very powerful emotion and it's difficult to question in the moment, right? <sighs> so but repeat your question because there was more I was going to say. Was <laughs> wasn't that.
0: Really que- Darn it wasn't really. You didn't catch the question because I didn't really ask one besides <laughs> just opine, question mark. Mm-hmm. But so you said something that I want to come back to, which is about homogeneity and this kind of like, uh, sorry, no, what you said was like, well, we used to understand each other. Why can we not understand each other anymore? And I feel like we, when we're looking at history, particularly American history, at the periods where we feel like gosh we were really successfully understanding uh one another there is a kind of trend, there there's a there's a pattern where often what we're pointing at is a case where there is more homogeneity than we have today or there is a dominant culture and when you say like okay well yeah within the dominant culture everyone's very happy we didn't have to worry about that um and, uh, you know, so I kind of want to share this kind of crackpot theory that I have that I kind of love, but I think everyone else kind of despises. Um, and it has to do with country music. And uh, so I'm a fan of country music. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who, when you ask, them, like, oh, so what kind of music do you like? They're like, well, I like everything except country music and death metal. Um and uh, you know, I, think, I don't know if, if, you, if you if you come across similar sentiments, but the point is, when you look at the themes that are covered in pop music, in contrast to, to country music, you get um, basically two things. One is I'm going to go out and find a mate. That's like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be really happy about finding this mate and it's going to be great. We're going to be together forever. And I love this mate so much. And, uh, you know, and then that's, so that's one theme. And then theme number two is I'm going to go out and have a good time. And those are two completely universal themes that every human being, no matter what background you're from can relate to and be like, yes, finding a mate. Yes. Going out and having a good time. And so that's what pop music covers because it's meant to cover the largest swath of, of, of like human interest. And then if you contrast that with country music, everyone loves to make country, make fun of country music because it's like, well, they're talking about their pickup trucks. They're talking about their guns. They're talking about all these things that to this group of people are really meaningful symbols and things that they really care about. And to so the rest of us, uh, to the extent to which they're not meaningful to us, we're just sort of like, yeah, that's kind of kitschy. That's kind of weird. I don't really get, like, what the point of it. But by being able to talk about that, you're able to get into these really, really nuanced emotions, right? Talking about, like... You know, I was helping my dad like fix the the truck back in the day and holding the flashlight. There's this great. I love this album uh, Neon by by Chris Young. And there's a song about like him holding the flashlight for his dad and what he learned from that. and like there's you know things about like you know his relationship with God and all these sort of things. And you'd never get any of this in pop music. And so I want to frame this as a kind of beauty associated with uh, homogeneity. like at the at the, at the very least, there is this really difficult dynamic where there's this interaction between our ability to understand and even express ourselves in the terms that we want to express ourselves in and the homogeneity of the audience to which we find uh, uh, ourselves ex- expressing what we think and what we believe.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you've you've run into Malcolm Gladwell on his podcast has an extraordinary, extraordinary episode uh, comparing pop music and country music. And in particular, he talks about how country music, some of the most popular country music songs ever are extraordinarily sad and how that's possible. And it goes into a lot of what you're talking about. It's the tension between the universal and the specific. So in country music, there's specific narratives, specific stories. It maps onto what I'm talking about, hearing an individual person's specific experience and how wonderfully that will deliver a nuanced emotional picture of that person and how they think. Um, pop music, like you said, it's, it's trying to be universal. And so it has to eliminate the specific and in, in doing so it eliminates the real, you know, it's why you get a lot of fire desire crap. Like, you know, we just rhyme some shit and like call it a day and, and popular pop music ends up people kind of read all kinds of different things and we debate what it really means. It, it, and sometimes it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) It's like, it's another way of saying it doesn't mean anything. There's no specific thing there at all. So what is, which is truer, which is better? Well, there, is, I don't think either one is. I think that there is a beautiful, healthy, I like that you use beauty. There's a beautiful healthy tension between trying to keep us together by being universal and trying to keep us together by seeing our individual selves and our individual stories. There's a beautiful tension there. And I think that some of that tension maps onto what it means to be liberal and what it means to be conservative. Um, you know, on some issues, our focuses are, are on the individual. On some issues, our focuses are on the system and the community. And it cannot be all one or the other on anything. So we become really stupid and ineffective when we lose the communication channel between those two giant ideologies in, in our country. And by the way, I, it, it's, it's very interesting to me from a political science perspective that all across this planet, there's some kind of conservative and liberal kind of sort of balanced out in every country. What? That has to mean something, right? One side can't be all bad if we keep seeing the two things repeat themselves. So anyway, I find that, I find that beautiful. And uh, going back to your point about what if we just took care of each other? What if we just made people's lives better? Well, yeah, I think a lot of this is about insecurity. It's about a sense of threat. And it's about how, how well supported and how much meaning you find in your life. You know, which then gets people scared because they're like, oh, no, you know, if people are just too buried in their own lives, they won't see anything around them. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that when people stand on their own two feet and, and have communities around them that feel supported, they can be creative and, and open um, in really cool ways, right? And they can see outside of their own fears. And, and we can, you know, th- those moments are moments of great lucidity um, and beautiful vision making. Uh, I think the founding fathers of America like, were in a pretty incredible, <laughs> incredible place of creativity and innovation. Did they get it all right? Of course not. But they got a lot right. I think they got a lot right. So can we get there again? Yes, we absolutely can. And I do think that something about taking care of each other is a really important first step. And I really do think that being curious about each other is how we do that really well in a time like this. When I am interested in you, not what you believe, but in you, Tell me more about you. You feel heard. You feel special. You feel like this person cares about me. This is a great feeling. This is a wonderful gift we give each other all the time. So you begin with the person, not the idea, you know, not the argument. Begin with the life and the experience. So, yeah, I would like to see that. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) Make Make it so that more people really don't feel all that threatened by so many situations. And then all these folks who want to exploit it because they're incentivized to can't.
0: Yeah. So for the final stretch here, I want to bring it back to family, because I feel like that embodies a lot of the themes that we've, we've sort of come to in, in this conversation. And among them, trust, which you mentioned a lot early on, and also this concept that when it comes to family, and in particular, if we find ourselves being in a close emotional relationship with our family, for whatever, whatever reasons influence that, um, you know, to, to have it be present for some people and not necessarily others, the beauty of that is that we have that motivation to understand where this other person is coming from. And even if we don't, even if we fail to understand where they're coming from, we still have that deep-seated desire and need, whatever it is, to love them. And I think one of the things that you touched on is that hasn't been, that isn't necessarily present. It's not the, at the forefront of our mind when we are engaging with the ideas that that someone else is offering when that person's ideas are in conflict uh, with ourself. Um, it, and so the, the one thing that... I honestly, uh, I find very funny and I, I've been meaning to ask you about this conversation. We've just gone off in so many different directions, but I find it funny that you have political conversations with your family. The way that I and my family have negotiated ideological differences in particularly in the pairs of people who have the most sort of deep seated discrepancies is it's like we connect on other shit. We don't talk about it. Every once in a while, you know, maybe we'll get into a deeper conversation. But like, how do you, like, why does that, <laughs> I don't know, why does that come up in your family? Like, what is it, what is it about? I know that's, again, a speculative question, but like, well, I, I, think, I think that's funny. Can you, can you say a little yeah. bit about that?
1: And I mean, you know, I didn't talk in the book too much about all the other stuff we talk about, right? But for example, I just spent a week with my parents and extended family down in Mexico City for the holidays. There wasn't a single political conversation that whole time. It was a blast. We talked about everything else under the sun and a lot of trust absolutely is built there. No question. Uh, and even, I think for a lot of families, it is, it is, it is the negotiation, right? That we, we don't bring this up. um, and we, we love each other and connect in different ways. And I think that that works really well just so long as someone is not starting to think less of someone else because of their politics when you start to think less of someone else because of their politics and then don't talk about it there's absolutely no context for that they can tell you know or um what i often hear from people on the left is you know my parents don't want to talk about politics but this or that political issue matters deeply to me and so when they say they don't want to talk about politics they're saying they don't want to talk about me that's how it feels i don't feel seen understood or, or or even welcome in that environment and all that their parents are trying to do is trying to keep the peace. They don't realize that it comes off as a rejection. So each family situation, each relationship is going to be different and, and people find their own negotiations. But I think it's mostly that, that if there is a kind of inferiority being placed on someone or a sense of you are really a terrible person, it's going to hurt the relationship unless you find a way, you know, to, to bring it out to where it can be explored. And that's really hard. That's really, really hard. Uh, and that's why Braver Angels is, was co-founded by a marriage therapist. You know, the analogy is to couples on the brink of divorce, where there is a relationship and there is love, but stuff has gotten in the way. Right. So that's where we need interventions. That's where we need to lean in. But no, when I do have a uh, political conversation with my parents, it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> <Just> suddenly like, <laughs> wait, dad, what did you say? <laughs> Hang on. Is that because of so and so, you know? And then yeah. we're in it, then we're on it. But but I make sure that it's the right the right context. I talk in the book about some of the places where that's good and bad to do. It's almost I mean where the, where they're really fruitful is when they last for 2 hours or more, which as you can imagine is not very often, mm. but it's really cool.
0: I guess maybe to just put my final thought in here. If I could seed the American public with one kind of like fairly minor proposition. It would be the idea that it's possible to love someone while also being in fairly profound opposition to them. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with narratives, is that that's what narratives allow us to tap into when they're rendered really well, is that we find ourselves simultaneously in deep disagreement or judgment of someone whose actions we don't like and, and don't condone. And yet we still have that deeper sense of wanting the best for them, potentially understanding w- why they're doing what they're doing and all of that sort of stuff. And I think maybe, you know, there's, there's, there's an important point here, which is that the, one of the so we talked about the ultimate solution potentially being like, well, if we solved everyone's problems, so we wouldn't have to worry about understanding other people's perspectives, we, we took away threats. Okay, so that's one thing. I think on the other end of the spectrum, we there's a sense in which we don't have to resolve ideological conflict. We have to be able to hold it in tension simultaneously in one hands we have that but we also have that respect and love and caring and those the uh, uh trust as you talked about and all those other um uh, in very important um you know ways in which we we relate to one another as human beings on the deepest level, and I think that's kind of uh something that stands out to me as a very minor solution to this big sort of thing that I, I would love to see adopted more.
1: Oh yeah, totally. I was just thinking about the moments that I've been in spaces where people, you know, on, on, on opposite sides of things are trying to come together and solve a problem. There's this beautiful moment where somehow it, that we've succeeded in sort of each side has really put across to the other well, what their concerns are and what they're afraid of. And and then there's a moment where like somebody on the other side just goes, Okay. Well, what if we? And then they get creative. Well, what if we did this? Right? If the other if the other person is still angry or doesn't feel heard yet, then they'll keep then they'll keep having that argument. But but if there's a break and they can breathe and then they come back, it's just this switch. It's this beautiful switch where we can finally problem solve. And I think so much of what we're working on is just getting to that stage, just even making it possible because we're not there. You know. We are swimming and dying and sinking in this whole, like, trying to hear each other stage. And so when people say, you know, you can't just talk. We're just going to talk everything to death. You can't talk ourselves into action. It's like, yo, we can't do the action that matters until we're hearing each other. We got to figure this out. You know, in too many cases, if we don't, then people will keep exploiting our lack of being able to hear each other, our lack of being able to take care of each other. You know, all these horrible theories and crazy things are just going to start soaring. And we don't like that. It destroys us. So, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think so much of it is, is exactly that.
0: Monica, you've been really generous with your time and expertise. And I have one final question for you. What are three books that have most influenced the way you think?
1: Mm, okay, I came ready for this. I had like a list of six. So let's see which ones I, uh, I actually say. Fire
0: them off. Let's Here we see go. It.
1: Um, El Alquimista by Paulo Coelho, which has been translated to all the language, The Alchemist. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a beautiful kind of fable parable. And I read it for the last time a few months ago. It always leaves me with this magical feeling. It's about, it's about how things that drive you are worth pursuing. Um, it's got a spiritual, magical, almost religious element about how the universe tends to kind of support drive and passion that, that is fueled, you know, by, by individual kind of dreams. Um, it's just gorgeous. Uh, I mentioned Ralph Waldo Emerson being.
0: Sorry, Monica, I have to stop you for that first one because you have single-handedly convinced me to move that book up to the next one that I'm going to read. Uh, it's been on my 2023 list, and uh, you know people have mentioned it and sort of stuff, and, and I've been meaning to get around to it. But yeah, you know, I'm uh, uh, since I'm I'm heading out. Um, I'm gonna be doing a lot of beach reading in the in the coming months. That one is 100% going to be uh, next it. on my yeah. list. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Oh, all right. You
1: will love it. Okay. So that's The Alchemist. It's amazing. Then to Emerson. I mean, his essay, Self-Reliance, is extremely popular, famous. It's absolutely groundbreaking. I actually, in high school, I put that on a CD. I burned it onto a CD and I listened to it in the car all the time. Um, it's just- God, you sound has, like a real nerd. Oh my God. I'm such a nerd about him he is, his writing is so timeless. It's so timeless. He just, he speaks to something in the human condition that is so true. And reading his essays, I've been going through more and more and more of them in the last year, just makes you feel your own power as a human, as an individual human with your independence. It's awesome. And it is nothing, (laughs) nothing does better than wake me up to my own power, that I can be courageous, that I can, I can make my own way in the world. I mean, Now I'm noticing a lot of similarities with The Alchemist. Um, And, you know, I'll give as my third one, um, I'll give a movie. Yeah. This is a surprise, I suppose, but it's Midnight in Paris. Oh, yeah. uh, It's directed by Woody Allen. Owen Wilson. Got Owen Wilson. And I remember walking out of that movie so lit. The whole world looked different. And that movie was about how we tend to romanticize other periods of time. If only I could have lived in this time or in that time or in that time, then I would have been swept away by the possibility. The message of that movie is that your time is the best time that there is magic and possibility where you are right now. And that the problem isn't the thing going on around you. It's you not seeing the beauty in your world. So now I'm realizing all three of those things are very similar <laughs> <to> the alchemist <laughs> self-reliance and midnight in Paris. So I think, I think a lot of it, honestly, like it's my whole approach to life. You asked about, you know, that affect the way I think it's, Anything that helps any of us see our own power as individuals um, and our, our own potential to pursue our passion, to be honest, to be candid, to be independent, um, to find the meaning that we need and to not feel defeated by the world. For any reason, you know, it's our world, let's make it ours in any way we can, it doesn't matter who we are, you can do it, you know, try not to feel too held back because a lot of that is 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 you stopping yourself, you know, I, I always have this vision of, um, there's a book by Lori Gottlieb and she's a therapist and it's incredible, but she gives this image of you holding like jail bars in front of your face and, and you just zoom out and you realize that you're just holding the bars. You can just walk around the bars and be free, dude. Like, what are you, what are you waiting for? You're not trapped. You're not as trapped as you think. Um, okay. And my daughter is here and I think that's my cue that I got to go uh so yeah
0: monica thank you so much for your time
1: thank you so much this was fantastic thanks Cody.
0: that was my conversation with monica guzman thanks for listening by the way i did get the alchemist after doing this conversation i'm about halfway through it it's great i'm hopefully going to write about it soon but yep great recommendation from monica and i also watched wednesday on Netflix, which is not in the normal span of things I would normally go for, but since she spoke so highly of it, I know several people who loved it. And yeah, it was a nice show. I liked it a lot. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. As always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast.